Welcome to the Bitcoin for Boomers show, and now the original Bitcoin boomer, Gary Leland. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Bitcoin for Boomers show. As you said, I'm your host, Gary Leland, and this is the Bitcoin for Boomers show, but only because I'm a boomer and I'm talking about Bitcoin. What I'm trying to say is you don't have to be a boomer to get something from this show or enjoy this show. So if you're interested in Bitcoin, I don't care how old you are, sit back and relax because we're going to talk about Bitcoin. We're going to have a special guest today, a good friend of mine, Stephen Cole. Uh, I want to call him an OG Bitcoiner. He started dwelling into Bitcoin around 2012, 2013. Those were the early days when it was a couple hundred dollars. So he's seen a lot of things happen in the world of Bitcoin. He's seen the value definitely go up. But he's seen a lot of technology changes, the way people perceive Bitcoin change. So we're going to talk to him about Bitcoin and about money in general, about with all the money printing going on. So stick to, to that. And also, I'd say this several times during the show probably, but I'm going to say it again. Share this show with your friends. Tell your parents, tell your grandparents, tell your kids, tell your friends, tell your spouse. We all need to learn about Bitcoin. I don't have Bitcoin to sell you. I'm not selling you any Bitcoin. I don't have any. I don't want to sell you my Bitcoin, but I do want to give you my knowledge because I think Bitcoin, I say it over and over, is a tidal wave coming through our economy. And the people who know about Bitcoin, just knowing about Bitcoin and understanding about Bitcoin is going to put you ahead of the majority of people on this planet because most people have heard of Bitcoin, but they have no idea what Bitcoin is. They don't know how many Bitcoin they are. They don't know the kind of things we're going to educate you on. I also, before I go to our, before we cut to our break here in a second, I want to tell you about another show I do called the Four Minute Bitcoin Show. I produce this show every weekday. In four minutes or less, you hear one news article. So you can find it on YouTube or iTunes, anywhere videos or podcasts are listed. Just search Four Minute Bitcoin. So I wanted to make sure you know about that because Everybody's got four minutes to hear one thing about Bitcoin every day. Between that show and this show, you'll probably be the most knowledgeable person at your office when it comes to Bitcoin. So we're going to go to a break right now. When we come back, we'll have Stephen Cole, and we'll be talking about money, Bitcoin, Austrian economics, a lot of stuff for sure. And welcome back to the Bitcoin for Boomer show. As I said earlier, I'm your host, Gary Leland, and this is the show where we talk about Bitcoin. And we talk, the show's not just for boomers. Let me also say that. It's only the Bitcoin for Boomer show because I'm a boomer and we're talking about Bitcoin. But I hope you learn a little bit. Tell everybody you know about this show. Let's get everybody interested in Bitcoin because it's something you need to learn about. Now, Travis, have we got any questions there uh, from the audience? Uh, yes, we have one question from Mark in Texas. You know, he wants to know, uh, the U.S. seems to be printing a lot of money right now. And how is that going to affect the price of Bitcoin moving forward? Well, you know, there's an old saying, supply and demand, that the less of something there is, the more it's worth, basically. Now, if you're printing more money, I think you can kind of add two and two together and get four. You're going to have more money, you're going to have less demand, it's going to be worth less. So if your money is dropping in value, 
there's a good chance your Bitcoin is going up in value. Bitcoin is considered by many people to be a hedge against inflation. You know, inflation is like a hidden tax that the federal government uses to um, tax you without you realizing it. There's no reason for your money to be worth less every year. Money didn't used to be worth less every year until they came out with the Fed back in the early 1900s. So that's why it's called a hidden tax. People don't really see it as a tax because their wealth is being stolen. Now I'm going to bring on a good friend of mine, Stephen Cole, and I want to go over this question with Stephen. Um, Stephen, thanks for joining me on today's show. I really do appreciate this. You came on with short notice, and that was very, very nice of you. Hey, Gary. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So how would you answer Mark's question? The fact that the dollar is being printed on hyperdrive, you know, printer go brr. So we've got the printer going like crazy, printing 24-7. They've said, Jerome Powell said, that they will print however much money it takes to keep us. I mean, verbally said, he's not turning off the printer, right? How do you think this could affect Bitcoin? I know you're not, we're, neither one of us are financial advisors. We're just giving thoughts, but how do you think printing money 24-7 as much as you can is going to affect Bitcoin? I think it's a great question. I'm glad it's being asked because it's a sign that more people are noticing this. Um, people used to not really think about how many dollars were printed or even where dollars come from. But uh, Mark's absolutely right. They have printed trillions of dollars, more than $3.5 trillion just over the last three months. And I think people are starting to understand that the more dollars they print, the less valuable the dollars that's in everyone's checking account or savings account are going to become. So effectively, the central bankers and the Fed are stealing purchasing power from the average people, right? Um, the price of goods and services increases. Groceries cost more on the shelves. And so I absolutely expect that to be the long-term effect of this money printing for prices to go up and for dollars to be less valuable. And so my strategy is to buy assets that they can't print um, you know, unburrable assets, you might say. Uh, so I definitely like Bitcoin, um, you know, and to some extent gold as as a hedge against their ability to inflate the supply of money. Well, yeah, gold and Bitcoin, either one of them are a hedge. Silver would go as far as it goes. I, I think some people say art can even be a hedge, you know, because it will hold its value or go up in value. But, you know, you were just saying they've printed three and a half trillion dollars over the last few months. I think right now they're trying to print another. The house is trying to pass another three trillion dollars this month to print. And I also believe I read that they have printed more money in maybe the last 60 days than they did the last hundred years. I mean, yeah, <laughs> a trillion dollars is starting to people are getting numb to it, right? A trillion dollars isn't going to be as big of a deal. Decades ago, printing a trillion dollars would have been wild, you know, unimaginable. And now it's kind of routine. Oh, yeah, we've got to keep the stock market up. Um, the stock market is how we know that the economy is healthy, is I think this, you know, sort of mistaken perception. It's almost like the Fed views its job as just keeping the, the S&P 500 up or you know keeping it in the green and if it starts to fall too much that must mean we need to print more money so that people can make more risky investments as opposed to letting the stock market just reflect economic activity 
And maybe there are rough times, but if you if you manipulate the money supply and distort the signal of price and value, then I think it gets into just dangerous, uh, you know, and often corrupt territory when it comes to centrally managing a money supply. So I like Bitcoin, I like gold, I like assets that they cannot try to centrally print more of and manipulate the supply of. Yeah, I agree with that. And I don't know why a government has to run the money in a, in a, in a, uh, a country. Why the government has to even be involved in the money. Um, I, I'm kind of confused on that. I would think money could take care of itself. And I would think companies, some companies go out, need to go out of business <laughs> when times go bad. They don't need to be saved. They should go out of business. Luckily, someone didn't decide to save that last buggy whip company saying that they made the best buggy whips and we better protect them or we won't have any. But, uh, you know, you came on, I can't went directly to a question. You have been in Bitcoin a long time. You may have been in Bitcoin longer than any guests we've had on here, actually. You've been in a long time. Tell us a little bit about your Bitcoin background, how you found out about Bitcoin and who you are so you can tell the audience who you are. Absolutely. Uh, so I've been a Bitcoiner since 2013. I heard about it 2012, got a little bit curious, started very seriously researching it in 2013, and then very actively, you know, investing to larger extents around 20, the beginning of 2014. I was working in Silicon Valley at the time, so my background is in web technology. I worked for some large internet companies. I worked for some small internet startups. When I was introduced to Bitcoin, I was living and working in downtown San Francisco for a technology startup. So kind of came at it, like had a bit of a tech context in looking at Bitcoin and was intrigued from that side of it. But I'd also been interested in economics and finance prior to that. And the idea of money not being centrally managed and centrally planned really resonated with me. The, the school of thought in economics that often, uh, you know, kind of promotes that is Austrian economics. And it's not so much taught in mainstream university programs nowadays. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of what is taught is Keynesian economics and sort of the, the central banks and, you know, the, the centrally controlled money supplies. But I was very interested in Austrian economics. So I had already since probably 2008 been coming to terms with the idea of money and state being separated would be a good thing that would be a better system and just didn't really see a way to achieve that right but then when i encountered bitcoin years later i thought wow this seems unique and maybe this could actually help us achieve that end of taking back control of the money from the government and and in my view that would restore power to people for kind of bring back some power from the governments and give it back to the people. And I think that'd be a great thing. Well, what I want to do, we're going to take a break in just a minute, but when we do take a break, I want you to go over the difference with the two types of economics you just told me, Austrian economics and Keynesian economics. Because I'll be honest, I had heard of Keynesian economics before. But I had never heard of Austrian economics until I got involved in Bitcoin. And I think a lot of people involved in Bitcoin are that way. That they really, there's something about getting involved in Bitcoin and learning about Bitcoin that makes you want to learn more about economics and more about money and more about finance. And you find out what these banks have been doing for so long. I think it's like uh, Henry Ford said, if everybody knew what the banks did, there'd be a revolution. 
And uh, so it's funny to me how that happens, that everybody wants to find that out. So we're going to go over that after we come back from this break. But before we go to this break, I do want to let everybody know about a conference that I hold in Dallas every year called BitBlock Boom. That's actually in the end of August. And BitBlock Boom is a Bitcoin conference. It's not a cryptocurrency conference or a blockchain conference. It's a Bitcoin conference. So if you're interested in finding out more about Bitcoin, come to my conference, bitblockboom.com. That's bitblockboom.com. I think it's a great opportunity to learn. Stephen will be there. I'll be there. There'll be a ton of Bitcoiners there. So I look forward to seeing you at BitBlock Boom. And I also want to make sure and mention that we, if you want to send in a question, send it to GaryLeland at gmail.com. That's GaryLeland at gmail.com. I forgot to mention that earlier. We'll see you in just a few minutes when we come back from this message. And welcome back to the Bitcoin for Boomer show. I'm your host, Gary Leland, recording in the Biz TV studios. And as I told you earlier, this is called the Bitcoin for Boomer show because I'm a boomer and I'm talking about Bitcoin. But this show is for anyone, not just old people. Anyone can learn from this show, as you can learn from my guest who's not near as old as me, Stephen Cole. Stephen, I guess we could pretty much call you maybe a Bitcoin OG. Is that right? A Bitcoin or OG? I mean, you've been in a long time, dude. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've been in it since 2013, but I, I've been referred to as an OG in a couple of contexts, but I definitely don't consider myself an OG. And I think any time that you get into Bitcoin, you look at all the people who were in it before you and who kind of laid that foundation, right? And uh, it is funny, too, when thinking about getting into Bitcoin, because it always feels late. It's kind of this funny psychological phenomenon, right, where... Even in 2013, it was hundreds of dollars for a Bitcoin. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, hundreds of dollars for one Bitcoin. That just seems really expensive. I'm late to this game and maybe this ship has sailed by now. Uh, but it's, you know, and clearly it was relatively early now that we're years later and we can see that. But I think it always feels that way. And I'm sure right now people looking at Bitcoin today, it's roughly 12,000 US dollars might think, wow, that seems really high maybe the ship has sailed and maybe I'm just late, but in hindsight, you know, maybe five, especially 10 years down the road, I suspect $12,000 Bitcoin will look laughably cheap. You know, and I've heard that statement before from people. Uh, so you're, it's not the first time I've heard that where people have said, you know, I saw it at 50 cents and it was $13. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've missed the boat. Or it was a couple hundred dollars and I thought it was too late, you know, so I, but I got in anyway and it's the same thing. Look, I heard about it, I think, when it was like $200 maybe and didn't get into it till it was a couple thousand dollars. And I was like, well, I better finally get into it. And it turns out I was not too late. So I think that's going to happen for a while. And there maybe even will be a point where we'll say, someone will say, gosh, it's $100,000. Maybe I'm too late to get into Bitcoin, but they get into it and then it goes up again. And I think you're right. Someday people will be laughing. Someday... I think, you know, I, I made a post on Twitter the other day that I thought was pretty good. I said, because I'm always saying I remember when Cokes were six cents. And that's something a boomer would say. I remember movies were 35 cents. I remember Coke was six cents. So when these young people are talking to their kids, they're going to be going, oh, I remember when Bitcoin was less than $10,000. And I go, oh, you're kidding me. So that's how I kind of relate that we'll see the inflation 
which we were talking about earlier, they're printing money affecting Bitcoin, just like it affected that Coke from six cents to 250. You know, it's going to affect that Bitcoin in that way. Now, before we left the other segment, we were talking about Austrian economics versus Keynesian economics. And like I said, I had, I was familiar with Keynesian economics because I've seen that mentioned quite a few times on just uh, commercial TV. But I don't think I had ever seen Austrian economics on commercial TV. And I found out more about that after I became a Bitcoiner. So I wanted to talk about that a little since you brought it up in the last segment. Absolutely. And that seems to be a pretty common theme is uh, Austrian economics isn't encountered much in the mainstream. I think that's unfortunate. And when people get interested in Bitcoin and trying to understand where money comes from, then often they encounter Austrian economics along that journey, usually in online materials. Um, Keynesian economics dominates the you know, university economics programs today. So I have friends who've got their bachelor's in economics and I asked them about Austrian economics when I started to hear about it. They had no idea what I was talking about. Um, so Keynesian Austrian, Keynesian economics kind of dominates university education to the point that that is just what's thought of as economics. Um, it isn't even really often thought of as a school of thought, you know, one of many. Um, but at a very high level, Austrian and Keynesian economics are sort of central planning versus free markets. Um, so Austrian economics tends to favor more of a laissez-faire, hands-off approach to money, allowing individual actors in an economy to choose what money suits them best and to set prices and have complete control over their economic activity. And there's a profound respect for price in that school of thought. So price is like an information signal. Um, if you have some disruption to your business, to your supply chain, then you may have to raise prices. Maybe your, uh, you know, your costs to run your business get more expensive. And that is how you communicate that to the world is by raising your price. Um, whereas in Keynesian economics, it's much more of a centrally planned model. So there are these central banks and fiat currencies, and they are trying to actively manage the money supply. Um, in some circumstances, they may support price fixing uh, or regulate certain parameters around what prices are allowed to be. Um, and essentially trying to, sometimes well-intentioned, but trying to avoid the boom and bust cycle. So the narrative around Keynesian economics will be, oh, well, we need these central planners because otherwise you would have crashes like the Great Depression um, and all these things that we've seen in the past. And so they, their charter is to smooth things out so that we avoid those. Uh, my opinion of it is that even if they succeed at smoothing things out in the short term, which is very difficult to do, it just kind of batches up the, the problem that just makes the inevitable crash later much, much worse. Well, I really never realized that the economy was manipulated that much until I started the, I guess, I keep, hate to keep saying until I got into Bitcoin, but that, until I got into Bitcoin, because that's made me start looking at, at finances. And when I think of a centralized economy, I really think of something like China, you know, fixing prices on things. I always thought that if a company didn't do something good or if times got bad, they went out of business, which I made an example of earlier in the show on the horse buggy whips. You know, if things aren't needed or they're not filling a demand or there's no demand for them or they're doing a bad job, they're going to go out of business. They don't need to be. For instance, with the airlines, maybe it was good 
would have been good if one of them had gone out of business. Maybe one of them shouldn't have been saved. During the banking crisis a few years ago, maybe a bank or two should have gone out of business. Maybe one big bank going out of business wasn't a bad thing. I, I, don't understand the, I don't understand the idea, the thought pattern beside economics that you can do better planning than letting the economy or the money or the system fix itself. Because I think it'll fix itself. Am I, am I wrong on your thoughts? And, and is that really what Austrian economics is saying to us? I'm right there with you, Gary, on, on all that. So I believe that in, you know, especially the great financial crisis of 2008, a lot of those banks should have just gone bust, probably more than did. Uh, the, the Fed took measures to rescue some large financial institutions. Uh, measures were taken very recently during COVID-19 here in 2020 to rescue, you know, the, the cruise industry and the airlines and buy all kinds of ETFs and kind of prop up the stock market. And I think when people hear the idea of, you know, an airline going out of business, for example, they may get scared and they may think, well, you know, that would, we wouldn't have air travel. Like air travel would just not be around anymore if that were to happen. But that's really not the case, right? If, uh, you know, maybe some airlines are better managed and they've been less risky with their finances and therefore they're in a better position to weather this storm and they should be rewarded for that foresight and for that planning. Um, and in the event that they do go bankrupt, then assuming people still want to travel someday um, and there's a, a demand to get from point A to point B with an airplane, then presumably other investors may come along and buy those assets in some bankruptcy process and rebrand it and you'd still have air travel, but maybe with some some learnings because you you wouldn't want to take as much risk as you did before. So that's what really bothers me about the bailouts is I think it removes that moral hazard, right? It, uh, if you take a lot of risk, if you're a corporation and you take out risky loans and you aren't allowed to fail, then you know you you continue to live on and your incentive, oh, I got away with it this time, so maybe I can be even riskier in the future. Yeah, I agree with you completely. It's not... Yeah, it's not like we're going to go out of, uh, all the airlines are going to go out of business. Somebody's going to stay. And somebody's going to come back to take the place of one that went out of business probably and improve it for us. So those are the things that happen. But I want to continue. I've got another question to ask you on the same topic when we get back that has more to do with Bitcoin, which this has to do with Bitcoin. But we'll be back in just a few minutes with uh, Stephen and we'll talk about some more Bitcoin stuff. Make sure and tell all your friends about the Bitcoin for Boomer show. I'm your host, Gary Leland. Talk to you in a minute. And welcome back. Gary Leland here with the Bitcoin for Boomer show. And we're talking to Stephen Cole. I'm going to call him an OG Bitcoiner since he's been in Bitcoin so long. Stephen, welcome back. Thanks again for joining me. Okay, I want to talk, we're talking about capitalism basically. You know, uh, Austrian economics, companies doing what they want to do, companies staying in business because of smart decisions or going out of business because of bad decisions. Sometimes maybe it's not, they just need to go out of business because they're not needed anymore, like my buggy whips example. But I want to talk about something I saw the other day that I thought was so bullish for Bitcoin. There's a company, and I have to look this up because I can't ever remember the name of the company, called MicroStrategy Incorporated. Now, I was not real familiar with this company. 
but they had $500 million in reserves in cash. And they decided that cash wasn't the thing to hold anymore. So they did a stock buyback with $250 million of their cash. And with the other half, the other $250 million, they bought Bitcoin and decided they were better off holding Bitcoin in reserves than holding U.S. dollars in reserves. So if I've got that correct, am I right? You've got that correct. And I think it's huge for, for Bitcoin and for kind of corporate finance strategy in general. MicroStrategy is not a small, you know, mom and pop shop retail business, and it's not a small tech startup. They're a $1.2 billion publicly traded U.S. company. And you're absolutely right. Their CEO, Michael Saylor, wrote uh, an investor memo and press release effectively detailing why they feel it's a smart move to put 50 to 60% of their cash reserves for their corporation into Bitcoin because effectively because of all of the recent money printing and the expectation of inflation, the expectation of dollars losing value. Um, so I think it's not only huge in terms of what it could do for MicroStrategy's business, but it has now set this precedent that uh, any other corporation, you know, might, might be able to follow. So nobody wants to be the first, right, to, to do something. And I think now Michael Saylor and MicroStrategy will kind of have caused other corporations to look around and say, should we be diversifying in similar ways? And what is this Bitcoin thing? Um, well, so he's, actually, he's given corporations permission to, to get into Bitcoin. Well, actually, I believe I also saw that since they made this announcement, the value of their company went up $250 million. So they basically got that Bitcoin for free. I mean, because their company went up in value for about the amount of the Bitcoin. So does that send a signal to other companies who are sitting on large cash reserves that maybe they should do some holdings in Bitcoin and actually... I would think the next few companies to do that would see the same benefit of their company going up in value because of their decision to buy Bitcoin. You're right. The stock for MicroStrategy popped in a very good way um, on the day that that was announced. If you look at other companies that have dealt directly in Bitcoin, so Square, one of the largest publicly traded financial companies in the world, um, Jack Dorsey is CEO and they own Cash App and that you know, has Bitcoin holdings and enables people to buy and sell Bitcoin. Uh, their stock has done really well and the numbers that they've been putting around, out around their earnings for their Bitcoin trading services have been, have been seeing fantastic growth. Uh, so the, the more that these companies seem to get exposure to or mention the word Bitcoin, the more positively the market seems to be reacting. Pay, there have been rumors of PayPal potentially enabling some Bitcoin-related functionality at, in their service in the following months. Who knows when or if that will uh, manifest, but, you know, interesting to see what would happen to their stock value if they do. Well, you know, this and this all, oh, it's funny, all of this really goes to our original question we had from Mark in Texas about what's going to happen to Bitcoin now that they're, they're printing so much money. But I think that I think that that's all is this is all what we're seeing, you know, and speaking, though, of not holding your reserves in money and uh, in other investments, I know it's not Bitcoin, Bitcoin, we call it digital gold. But in the world of real gold, Warren Buffett 
just put 500 million in Barrick Gold. So he's getting out of the U.S. dollar to a degree and saying, I don't want those reserves of that money in U.S. dollars. They were in banking. He pulled money out of banking stocks and put them into gold. So it's kind of like the same line. People that have money and people who are smarter than me, actually, I would think, see money as not the thing to hold on to. And gold, whether it's digital or real, maybe is a thing. And gold's had a run of its own. Yeah, gold's done real well in recent months. Um, you're, you're right. It just seems like the writing is on the wall that the dollar is positioned to lose value in the, in the medium term and especially long term. And so everyone is looking for their hedge, right? The biggest advantage that gold has over Bitcoin is history. So it has a 6,000 year lead effectively on Bitcoin as being sound money. And it's built up a, a very long reputation and a lot of trust and credibility as a safe haven asset. So when people get scared of fiat money or some other asset, they might flee to gold. Um, but Bitcoin is more scarce than gold. It's easier to transport. It's easier to divide. And effectively, every other function of money, Bitcoin is superior. And so I think as long as Bitcoin just continues to exist and to chug along and, you know, uh, remain scarce and maintain those attributes that it has, then really all that's required for more value to realize that it's superior to gold is time. Um, it, you know, gold did have thousands of years of lead time on Bitcoin. I think now that Bitcoin exists, it's just a matter of time until people start to view it as more of a safe haven asset as well. And and with gold, you know, gold was the gold standard was made by Isaac Newton. I mean, this is a long time ago. This is the same guy that scared gravity. Okay, so gold has been the first to market kind of in that spot, and uh, held was the currency, the world currency for a long time. Uh, I have people that I've listened to, like Peter Schiff, for instance, who says gold will come back as the world currency. But, but I don't see any example of a currency that's been removed and replaced ever coming back. That's never happened before. So I'm more apt to think Bitcoin has a better chance of becoming a world currency if the dollar does um, take a, a too big of a dive than gold. And Getting on your subject, though, and I just wanted to mention that real quick, but I really want to touch on your 21 million. Because I find this subject, not only is it just a great subject, we know how many Bitcoin is made. I know how many Bitcoin will be made today, tomorrow, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. I mean, you can schedule it all out, but there are still people like my wife, as much as she hears me talk about Bitcoin, all I watch on TV is Bitcoin. YouTube or whatever. I don't ever watch regular TV anymore. And last night she comes up to me and she says, you know, if you're right on this 21 million, I think this Bitcoin could be the deal. And I go, what do you, what do you mean if I'm right? Well, they could be lying to you. <laughs> and so I think a lot of people have that feeling that we're just making up this limited quantity. Yeah, uh, you're right. So Bitcoin, one of its most important attributes, right, is that it is a fixed supply. Um, so there will never be more than 21 million Bitcoin. And some of those 21 million, a significant number, have been lost um, and are presumably unspendable, unmovable forever. Uh, estimates are in the range of 3 million. So subtracting that from 21 million, let's say there's about 18 million Bitcoin that will effectively exist and be able to, to circulate. 
So it's extremely scarce. And what you described, I think, is spot on, and I've observed it too. There's a lot of skepticism of that limited supply. And I believe that's a symptom of the culture that we've lived in that has never really had anything that's truly scarce, except, except maybe, you know, time, right? Uh, so everyone's time is very scarce, but it's not predictably scarce. We don't know in advance how much time we're going to have necessarily. Uh, but with other assets, it's easy for the supplies to do unexpected things. Maybe we discover a huge deposit of gold um, under the floor of the ocean in a few well, years. Speaking uh, of time, we're gonna we're out of time for this segment. So I'm gonna we got a hard cut coming up. So we're gonna go to that right now, and we'll come back and finish this conversation in just a second. I want to talk about that and space mining. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Bitcoin for Boomers show. I'm your host, Gary Leland. I hope you've enjoyed today's show. We have a little more for you, for sure. But I want to, before we go to uh, bring Stephen back, I want to make sure you know that we need you to tell everybody about this show. I want everybody to learn about Bitcoin. I, got, I don't have any Bitcoin to sell you. I'm not selling you on Bitcoin. I'm just trying to educate you. So tell everybody you know about the Bitcoin for Boomers show. Hey, Stephen, welcome back. Now, we were just talking about limited amounts of Bitcoin, the $21 million limit. And I was thinking about during the break, you mentioned the 3 million Bitcoin that we think are lost, okay? So you, that brings us down to really 18 million Bitcoin. Those Bitcoin exist, but people have lost them, just like they lose pocket change. And we're not going to get into how that happens, because that's a show on its own. But also, the Satoshi Nakamoto invented Bitcoin, mined the first million, and he's never spent or moved one of them. So... You know, that's kind of like <laughs> lost Bitcoin to me. Yeah, you're right. And it's really interesting because we can look at the data of how many transactions are happening in Bitcoin and how many Bitcoin are moving around. But we can never really tell whether something a Bitcoin is not moving because someone is just choosing not to spend it that day or for some other reason, maybe because it's been permanently lost, or maybe the person who had control of it has passed away. Um, you know, there could be any number of circumstances. And just from observing the data, we can never know. Maybe they're just a very patient holder of Bitcoin. Well, he's very patient because he'd be one of the richest people on the planet and he's never spent one Bitcoin. But, you know, the fact that we were getting also into earlier about how a lot of people have a hard time with the belief of 21 million limited amount that it can't be increased. You know, uh, people do have a hard time with that because I've had two people, like I said, my wife and someone else within the last two weeks, tell me, what if they get in there and they just change that code and they add a lot of Bitcoin to it? So, and I can see now, I hadn't thought about what you said, that people just are not used to anything being limited, especially not money. No one's around that remembers even money being backed by gold, hardly. You know, I mean, I remember it was backed by gold, but I was a kid, you know, so it, it meant nothing to me. But now, as you were saying, we are finding more gold that's under the sea. We haven't mined under the sea. They say there are asteroids going by that have gold in it. We, and now we're finally getting technology that can go out in space and do stuff. Like, I would imagine if an asteroid came by and a spectrometer or whatever they used to tell what an asteroid is made out of, said it's made out of top solid gold and it was going to be here in 10 years, there'd be people trying to figure out how to get there and intercept that thing. 
Absolutely. We have no idea how much gold is on Earth, let alone in our solar system, let alone the universe, right? So its supply is very unknown. Um, but that said, it is a lot more scarce and harder to find than many other assets. It's certainly more scarce and harder to find than dollars, right? Dollars are kind of created out of thin air by the central banks, just like other fiat currencies. So I think that people just aren't conditioned in our society for true scarcity. And the fact that there are only 21 million Bitcoin max that can ever exist forever is something that even when you hear it, it just really takes a while to wrap your head around. You know, we're constantly told it's the last of something. Um, you know, it's there's only this many shares of stock in a company. There's only this many Star Wars movies. There's only this many Jay-Z albums. But uh, but people can make money by inflating the supply of something valuable. And so inevitably, more of those things appear. And that just can't be the case with Bitcoin. It is it is strictly limited. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm, I'm waiting for to uh, find out. You know how many Star Wars there'll be, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so Same here. Our Quentin Tarantino movies, those are supposed to be limited. You know, so I find Bitcoin just fascinating. Another thing also I find about Bitcoin, uh, not only the 21 million fascinating, but fascinating that a lot of people don't understand is the fact that you don't have to buy a Bitcoin. How many times have you heard, Stephen, that I'd like to get some Bitcoin, but I don't have $12,000? People don't understand that concept either. You're right, and that is critical to understand. You do not have to buy an entire Bitcoin. It's not like a stock where it's a share price and you can either afford one share or you can't. You can buy a small fraction of a Bitcoin. You can buy $2 worth of Bitcoin right now if you want to, and you'll own 0. .000 whatever Bitcoin. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to, well, first of all, maybe just awareness of that. Some people simply don't know that Bitcoin are divisible. But even once you do realize that, there's this unit bias that is natural for us. People want to feel like they own a whole unit of something, right? The idea of having a fraction of a Bitcoin may not sound as nice as having a bunch of some other asset. Uh, but I think that's just a symptom of how early we are. So it's like saying, I don't want to buy gold because I can't afford a ton of gold or a huge gold brick, um, you know, when really an ounce of gold is a lot of money. Yeah. And I just think that's uh, a sign of how early we are. I think I think you're correct. I think someday people will say, I, I own 0.1 Bitcoin, or I want to own 0.1, or I want a 0.01. So, hey, Stephen, we're going to have to end it here. Um, I appreciate you coming on the show and taking time with us. And where can people follow you at? Appreciate you having me. Um, I'm on Twitter, twitter.com slash S-T-H-E-N-C, S-T-H-E-N-C. Well, thanks again for joining me, and I'll see you uh, in about a week at BitBlockBoom. Looking forward to BitBlockBoom. See thanks, you there, Gary. Thanks again. Okay, Stephen's a great guy. He has a lot of knowledge. He's been into Bitcoin for a long time, so he has way more knowledge than I do. So happy to get him on the show. But speaking of knowledge, you can send us questions if you have a question and you want us to answer them on the show to Gary Leland at Gmail. And Travis, have we got another question to end up the segment? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. We have one from uh, Tom in New York. Now, I keep hearing that I need to take my Bitcoin off Coinbase but, uh, uh, and store it on my own wallet. Uh, why can't I just leave it on Coinbase? Okay. That's a good question. It's a simple question. Coinbase, for those who don't know, is an exchange. It's like a stock exchange. It's a cryptocurrency exchange where you can buy Bitcoin. And when you buy it, you can leave it there. But remember, Coinbase is not a bank. 
See, that's where a lot of people get confused. They think Coinbase is a bank. Every time you've heard of Bitcoin being stolen or Bitcoin being hijacked or Bitcoin being something happened to it, it was at an exchange, not Coinbase necessarily, but it was an ad exchange similar to Coinbase. So if people are wanting to steal Bitcoin or somehow they go to exchanges because there's a honeypot there, there's a lot of Bitcoin. So if you have your own wallet, that's another show we'll get into, but it's your own personal storage device. You can take your Bitcoin off of the exchange or off of Coinbase, store it on your own personal device, put it in a safety deposit box or wherever you want to, and no one can get to your, coin, to your Bitcoin because it's not online. It's not on the internet. It's not hooked on the internet anymore. It's in your personal storage device. So that is what uh, people were talking about, and I recommend it highly because every time someone's had their Bitcoin stolen, it's been a, an exchange like Mt. Gox or something like that that had poor safety protocols. So I hope that answers your question. And get that money, get that Bitcoin off Coinbase, Tom. Do it now. Now, also, I want to make sure you know we're about to end this segment. we got one more segment where I'm going to give you a news article. But I hope you've enjoyed this show. I just want to tell you that real quick because sometimes at the end I get in a little hurry there. I hope you find out about Bitcoin. I do have another show I, I produce you may want to check out. It's the four-minute Bitcoin show. I produce one segment about one news story every day, and I do it in four minutes or less. That's why it's called the four-minute Bitcoin show. So go to fourminutebitcoin.com, check out that show, and subscribe. And start learning one thing every day about Bitcoin. This show is only four minutes. You should be able to handle learning something in four minutes every day. But at least ways... If you listen to them, that show and you watch this show, between the two of them, you are going to know enough about Bitcoin that you can carry on a conversation with someone if they ask you a question. Or if they're talking about Bitcoin, you can at least way sound intelligent about the subject. And then if Bitcoin does keep growing because of the amount of money being printed, you will be ahead of the game. You will already know more about Bitcoin than most of your friends do, than most people on the planet do. Most people on the planet have heard about Bitcoin, but they really have no idea what it is. So I'm hoping you're learning a little bit about Bitcoin from this. And now we're going to take a break and we'll come back with our ending right after this. And I want to say thank you for sticking with us this long. And thanks again, Stephen, for joining us. It was great talking to you. I'm your host, Gary Leland, and I hope you've enjoyed today's show. Now, I want to go over a topic, mining Bitcoin. Mining Bitcoin is the action of creating Bitcoin. New Bitcoins are created every 10 minutes, and that's what mining is. Now, I saw an article by Osata Avan Namano at Cointelegraph.com, and I kind of wanted to share that article with you. And like I said, this has to do with Bitcoin mining. And it seems that Bitcoin mining in Iran is set to become even bigger with the government giving the green light for power plants to mine Bitcoin. Now, by allowing power plants to engage in cryptocurrency mining, Iran is joining other emerging, emerging hubs in the global hash wars. Iran has seen an influx of miners because of its cheap electricity, catapulting 
the country to be one of the more significant cryptocurrency mining uh, nations, outside of China, that is. Iranian authorities have given the go-ahead for power plants to mine cryptocurrency. However, the power plant operators cannot use subsidized fuel. Iranian power plants looking to mine Bitcoin must obtain a license from their government and use the approved electrical tariffs. Not allowing power plants to use subsidized fuel is a measure taken by the government to ensure that such activities do not negatively impact the supply of electricity to the residents and other industrial sectors in the country. Now, as of January, the country's Ministry of Industry, Mine, and Trade has issued over a thousand licenses for crypto mining. Before legalization, some miners had their operations in mosques in order to enjoy the free electricity, and that prompted a government crackdown due to spikes in energy consumption. A compromise was soon found, with the government allowing mining and even incentivizing more participants to move their operations to Iran with the promise of tax holidays. Iranian crypto miners that repatriate their foreign earnings to the country are eligible for certain tax exemptions too. Now, the question is, since Iran is actively mining and actively pursuing Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies to get around the US dollar sanctions, I'm sure, does this mean this is something the United States may have to do to compete in the global hash war? Will we see the United States start mining in order to keep up with Iran and other countries? Think about it. Thanks again for joining me on today's Bitcoin for Boomer show. I'm your host, Gary Leland and come back again, and I hope we see you next week. Thanks. <laughs>